WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. February, as you must know by now, is Black History Month. It also typically means that news organizations and educational institutions engage in some level of effort to focus on black history, as well as current issues affecting people of color. And that means black leaders, historians, teachers, and officials, because of the color of their skin, shoulder a disproportionately heavy load for teaching, raising awareness, and explaining what it means to be black in 21st century America. This occurs whether or not that person is professionally engaged in discussing racial issues. So today we're putting the psychological and emotional labor on white people in service of moving towards racial reconciliation. It's a load that white people can choose to undertake or ignore, a form of white privilege that perhaps you haven't thought about. Our quest today is not to prove that a racialized American culture exists. Plenty of social scientists and other researchers have thoroughly documented the ways race profoundly affects life outcomes, such as health and longevity, wealth accumulation, job opportunities, and political influence. Our goal today is to point to the ways these structures have long been invisible to well-meaning white people and to explore what it means in practice to be an anti-racist. It's also not our goal to beat the drum of white guilt, our own or others. That's not helpful. What is helpful is white awareness, commitment to learning, and action. With me today, Dr. Kim Cook, professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She was recently awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Society of Criminology, and she is the director of the Restorative Justice Collaborative at UNCW. Professor Cook, welcome back to Coastline. Thank you so much, Rachel. Jim Downey retired from New Jersey, moved to Wilmington in 2011 with his wife. He is a glass artist as well as a community activist. He leads the new Hanover County Community Remembrance Project, which focuses on commemorating the victims of Wilmington's 1898 massacre. Jim Downey, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you so much, Rachel. There are so <laughs> many ways we're going to pull back the curtain on all the concerns about the kind of conversation that we're having today. But let's start with white guilt. Professor Cook, why is white guilt a pitfall? And why is it something that this conversation cannot be about today? Uh, there's plenty for white people to feel guilty about. Um, and I think what ends up happening is that when people feel that they are being um, accused, that the guilt turns into shame, and then the shame turns into frustration, and then the, sh the frustration turns into an outburst, and it's counterproductive. Um, and then we end up with a massive display of white fragility, which completely shuts down conversation and closes off learning, and closes off bridge building 
right, and collaborating with each other and, and going deeper into the lesson of the value of relationships and the value of being a community member, being a good citizen in our community. So I think it becomes an obstacle quickly because people who look like me can't oftentimes have a difficult time overcoming that immediate emotional response to such an extent where they can engage in a meaningful conversation. Jim Downey, you came to an awareness of your own whiteness, what it means to be white in this culture, fairly late in life, your words, that's how you describe it. Can you talk about that awakening for you, how it happened, and and what it means to you now to be white? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I would say that I've always been kind of uh, on the left side of political issues and had been involved in um, pro-choice movements, uh, pro-women uh, protests, um, anti-war uh, protests. But race uh, relations and racial justice was not something that I felt either <clears throat> I could do anything about or really affected me until um, at the end of 2017, an author named Debbie Irving uh, gave a talk at UNCW uh, about her book called Waking Up White. And so I attended this, um, this talk and uh, got the book and started thinking about what it means to be white. It's not something I had thought about before um, because I don't know about all people. I know, but as me, I think of myself as like an Irish American, you know, because my heritage comes from Ireland. So I see myself as different from what I may identify as somebody else being white because I grew up in the 60s where the focus was on white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, wasps, and being an Irish Catholic, I was not that. So I didn't see myself as being white. But after reading this book, I started waking up to the fact that I am white and there are some responsibilities and some baggage that I was not aware of that goes along with that title of being white. Professor Cook, what does it mean to be white in the in the technical sense? So as a sociologist, my training um, provides tools for us to understand how we got into the predicament that we're in. And one of the tools is this concept of social constructs, that while there are variations in human phenol, uh, f the, the body types, the morphology of what it looks like to be human, that there's also then the meaning that we make of those differences. And so the meaning that we as a society make of the differences in skin tone uh, and the differences of ethnic background, as Jim was saying, being Irish is not wasp. I'm also French Catholic. My heritage is mostly French Catholic, although I do have some wasp in me as well, English and, and um, Irish and Scottish. Um, but those, the meaning that we make of those identities is what really shapes how we interact with one another and how we designate it. Dr. Gail Christopher refers to a hierarchy of human value based on this social construct that we consider to be about race. Um, there is no 
variability in terms of human um, human biology. We're all human, but we have a a lot of variation in terms of how humans appear, and then we construct a hierarchy of human value on that appearance. Um, and that can be very devastating to people who are on the lower end of that human hierarchy that we, the, the value hierarchy that we construct. So I don't consider myself white as such, although the rest of the world often perceives me as that. I am designated as white, so I call myself designated as white, designated by a social construct that is not of my making, but it is an inheritance that I can't avoid. And there are so many white people who will say racism is a horrible thing. Yes. And it's also mostly a thing of the past. <laughs> but we know uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva out of Duke University wrote a book called Racism Without Racists. And, and he makes this academic case that everyone in America is affected by the racialization of society and those of us who aspire to live in a society where social cleavages such as race become irrelevant have to work on the politics of racial change. But it's invisible to so many white people, mm -hmm. this, this racialization of society. Why is it invisible? Why is it so hard for people who look like us to see? Because we take it for granted. We take for granted the advantages that we have as people who... Uh, inherit the assumptions of goodness, the, inherit the assumptions of competence, inherit the assumptions of intelligence that go along with this designation of human value. Um, and because of that, we are assuming that other people have the same experience as ours. Our experience is the norm, and everyone else's experiences may be different or othered. And so what we end up having is this notion that, well, other people should just act like us and then they'll be okay. They should just do it our way and then they'll be okay. Well, I'm telling you what, that is um, foolhardy to imagine that people who are designated as having uh, less human value on that notion that Dr. Christopher talks about, that they can just shake it off. Um, it doesn't get just shaken off because the rest of society keeps piling it on over and over again. Jim Downey, when you started with the book Waking Up White, what did you start to recognize about your, your own white privilege that you hadn't seen before? Can, can you give us a specific example of what you know now is white privilege, but at the time you weren't aware? Yes. Um, the book, um, and kind of like what, what Kim was just talking about, she, um, Debbie Irving realized that through her entire growing up, she had images of white people in power, in business, in the arts, and just thought that this was the way life was supposed to be. And, um, and I never thought about like the images that I grew up with in the, in the 60s and, and early 70s. And um, one of the things that came across in the book was her realizing that during the time after World War II, when um, the government was um, giving loans to people for uh, buying houses and going to school, not everyone had access to that. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of the work white people can do 
on racial reconciliation. After this short break, more on how well-meaning white people can take a more active role in anti-racism. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. The new racism, chronicled by legions of social scientists, including Eduardo Benia Silva in his book Racism Without Racists, is more sophisticated. It's a much less visible version than the Jim Crow racism that many of us think of as racism. With me today to explore the work that white people can do to move the country towards racial reconciliation are two people whose work intersects locally, although they work in very different roles. Professor Kim Cook of UNCW's Sociology and Criminology Department is also the director of UNCW's Restorative Justice Collaborative. Jim Downey is a glass artist who leads the new Hanover County Community Remembrance Project. And just before we went to break, Jim Downey, you were talking about ways you were starting to recognize your whiteness and during the break, we had a conversation about what we're doing here. And uh, uh, Professor Cook, you raised the question of whether we are focusing on black history and how we can really move towards racial reconciliation, the work that white people need to do, mm-hmm. and centering the conversation on whiteness. Yes. What's the difference there? So. It's so easy for people who are designated as white to slide into our comfort zone of talking about our experience as normative, as emblematic, and to erase then the experiences and the talents and innovation and struggles and challenges that black people have had in this country since 1619. And I I am not going to amputate black people from this conversation and the reality that my ancestors and my contemporaries have created. Both of you looked for figures who would be part of black history, Mm -hmm. who perhaps don't get as much attention as they should. Do you want to tell us about one of the people that you, Mm -hmm. you thought needed to be brought up? Yeah, I this this is a woman who is um, from Massachusetts, and um, she was born in 1744. She was born into slavery, and was at the age of seven or eight years old. Um, and 1744 is an estimate, so we don't really know exactly when she was born, but it was about 1744. Um, she was her the woman who was her mistress was the daughter of the person who owned her 
And when this young woman got married, Hannah Ashley married her husband, Mr. Ashley, um, this child went with her and she grew up and she grew up to be a midwife and she grew up to be a healer and she grew up, you know, in that condition of an enslaved woman um, doing great work, helping people heal from the things that they needed to heal from, but still enslaved and, and treated miserably. So 1770s roll around and she's serving in the household and she's hearing a lot of talk about the American Revolution. And the American Revolution is talk about, you know, being born free, you know, all men are born free and equal and that the uh, colonists who are agitating for independence from England wanted to be free from England. And she actually ended up suing for her freedom based on the ideas that were in the Massachusetts Declaration. Um, her name is, at the time, she was known as Mumbet, M-U-M-B-E-T-T. And uh, when she won her freedom in this lawsuit, she became, she named herself Elizabeth Freeman. And uh, she is as much an American patriot and a woman who has shaped our continuing narrative around what it means to be free. And I think she's just an amazingly strong woman. And the notion that we have had a history based on what W.E.B. Du Bois called the color line in our country, she has defied it. She has resisted it. She has fought against it. I mean, she had a scar on her arm when she had a conflict with Hannah Ashley, her, her quote, owner. Um, Hannah Ashley attacked her and wounded her arm so badly that she had this visible wound on her arm, and she refused to cover it up because she wanted the world to see what her owner, quote, unquote, had done to her. And she was not going to play the game of refined whiteness. She was not going to play the game that her mistress was a refined white lady. So I just, I think she was an amazing badass woman. And uh, thank you for that. You're welcome. Elizabeth Freeman. Yes. Also known as Mumbet before she was free. Right. And she sued for her freedom and won. Yes. in Massachusetts. Yes. And Jim Downey, I know that you have someone to talk about as well. Before we get to that, I, I want to go back to this notion of how racism has sort of moved and changed since the Jim Crow era when, uh, you know, we had Reconstruction and we started to see, as we did right here in Wilmington, North Carolina, mm. this thriving black professional class. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the black population here, especially Jim Downey, as you know, leading the new Hanover County Community Remembrance Project was uh, just going gangbusters in terms of, of building businesses and owning real estate and making, making these extraordinary lives. We had doctors and lawyers. And, mm. and what else did we have in Wilmington at the time before the coup? Well, before the coup, the, uh, Wilmington was a predominantly black city. It was the largest city in North Carolina. Um, there, uh, there were uh, black people on the city council. 
they were police officers. Um, it it was it was thirty years after slavery had ended, and the city became a place where black people could come and actually build wealth and build a happy life. And that was uh, very upsetting to some white supremacists, and they decided to put an end to it. Um, part of our work at the New Hanover County Community Remembrance Project is not so much to talk about the politics of what was going on at that time, but to talk about the people who were living here in Wilmington and what happened to them. So our project has been about getting the names of the people um, who died, where they lived, trying to put together the stories of their lives, because they, their stories have not been told yet. Um, that is the work of uh, our co-chair, Tim Pinnock, who is a African-American genealogy researcher. So we were very fortunate to have found some living relatives of three of the people that we know who died here. And many of them came to Wilmington last year for our soil collection ceremony, the Joshua Halsey family. Um, they are quite numerous. Kim is in touch with them uh, quite a bit, more than I am. But this year, we are in the process of thinking about having some kind of family reunion for all the people that we can get who had family here in Wilmington in 1898, who um, left the city for obvious reasons, but we want them to come back and, and to meet each other and to build those relationships and tell those stories about the resilience of the black community. Yeah. And so the massacre that happened in 1898 was part of a, a movement that was happening around the country and then more restrictive laws that were openly racist laws uh, were enacted to keep African-American people uh, in their place as the whites at the time would have articulated it. And, and so people would say those Jim Crow laws aren't here now. Mm. And so we've come a long way. But in Racism Without Racists, Edward Eduardo Bonilla Silva examines how racism actually does show up, not in individuals. And he also points out that that's sort of a, a losing battle to try to point to people as racist and how it's far more constructive to look at the systems. And, and one of the ways I think it shows up, Isabel Wilkerson Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist, also the best-selling author of *Cast: The Origins of Our Discontents*. She was talking with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and talking about how certainly in the 21st century, black professionals can move through the world objectively as successful people, but it doesn't mean that incidents like this won't continue to happen. I made arrangements to interview all these people. I made the arrangements over the phone to interview a number of people uh, for the story. And all the interviews had gone well until I got to the last one. It was the last interview of the day. I was very much looking forward to it. The person uh, that I was speaking with or going to speak with uh, had been very excited to talk with me over the phone. But when I got there, uh, he happened not to have been there at the time. And the place that I went, it was an establishment, a retail establishment, happened not to have a 
other people in it. And so I was waiting for him to get there. The door opens and this man comes in. He's very harried. He's got this coat, his overcoat on. He's, he, he's, he's late for an appointment uh, with, with ultimately with me. Uh, but he's harried. He's, he's frazzled. He's anxious. And um, the, the clerk who had helped me earlier told me to go up to him and that, that this was the man I was there to interview. And I went up to him and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I, I can't talk with you right now. And, and I was flummoxed by that. I mean, why, here, we're here for the interview. Why, why are you? Why are we? Why are you saying you don't have time to talk? And he said, No, no, I can't talk with you right now. I'm getting ready for a very, very important interview. I cannot talk with you right now. And I said, Well, well, I, I'm, I think I'm the person interviewing you. I'm, I'm Isabel Wilkerson with the New York Times. And he said, Oh, he said, Well, how, how would I know that? How, how, how do I know that you're Isabel Wilkerson? And I said. I am here. This is the time. It's 4.30. Here, we're here for the, for the interview. And he said, well, do you have a business card? And I said, I, I actually happened not to have had any because I, it was the end of the day and I'd been interviewing people all day and this was the last interview, which I was very much looking forward to. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I'm out of business cards right now. He said, well, do you have something that, do you have some ID? Could I see some ID? And I said, I shouldn't have to show you ID. We're, we're already into the time that we were to have the interview. We should be talking right now. He said, well, I need to see some ID. And so I pulled out my driver's license to show it to him. And he said, you don't have anything with the New York Times on it? And he said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because I'm, I have a very important interview coming. She'll be here any minute. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. So I was actually accused of impersonating myself because I was not perceived as being the person. I was not perceived as being someone who should have been in the position of a New York Times national correspondent there to interview him. Isabel Wilkerson of the New York Times and best-selling author of the book, Cast, The Origin of Our Discontents, talking with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And she goes on to discuss the kind of psychic cost that an incident like this has. And she she uses the terms heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. Those are the words she uses with Terry Gross. And, and then she extrapolates that to to say, just imagine if this goes on, around the country, all the time, with lots of people, not just me, the breadth and the depth of the loss of productivity that this has in America, what that means, and also just the psychic cost for all of these people in the United States. Professor Cook. Um, I think Isabel Wilkerson is one of the most talented writers of our time. I think that she has a very compelling strategy for uh, documenting and relaying the need for us to be more aware of it. I treasure her writing. This story is maddening. Um, We see lots of different things going on in this story. We see a self-important person coming into an interview or at least anticipating an interview with somebody that he expects will not be a person of color and she has to credential herself every minute of that brief interaction that she had with this person and the credentialing is exhausting um in having to go through that level of energy all the time just to get to the point where you're going to do your job, getting to the point where you can do your job. 
not just doing your job, right? But being prepared and getting into the interview that she wants. I mean, it's just so you're talking about the time, just the time, time that it takes. It's it, but then it you wears have to you down, right? You have to go into your and job then, then, having been through that. Right. Then you have to shake it off and you have to focus on doing the job in a, after an interaction like that. And honestly, it takes an enormous amount of emotional self control. I would imagine. I have not been in that predicament myself personally, but listening to it, it just it 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 floors me to think how frustrating and the cumulative effect of that over the course of an entire career the cumulative effect of a full day of it is just unbearable to imagine jim downey i was you know as as we were listening to that i was thinking about uh, Isabel Wilkerson and the book cast and another book that we read for our Race Matters book discussion. Uh, it's called I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown. The very first chapter addresses this. The chapter is called White People Are Exhausting. <laughs> and and, and it's, a short, it's a short paragraph and I'm going to read it. White people can be exhausting. Particularly exhausting are white people who don't know they're white and those who need to be white. But of all the white people I've met, and I've met a lot of them in my three decades of living, studying, and working in places where I am often the only black woman in sight, the first I found exhausting were those who expected me to be white. And so that must have been what was going on in that man's head when he encountered Isabel Wilkerson. And why else would he want to see some proof that she was from the New York Times? I, I can't imagine what that was like for her. Yes. You also brought, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get through the whole thing before we go to break, but uh, if we can't, we will, we will come back to it. But you also came up with somebody who you thought didn't get as much attention during Black History Month, someone who isn't as well known, but perhaps should be. And this, and this is a book that I learned from my wife, uh, who's a librarian, and she just told me about this book. It's called Carolina Built, and it's about a woman named Josephine Leary. And so this is a book that's being read right now. I believe it just came out last year. And Josephine uh, Leary was from, um, she was from the eastern part of North Carolina, but she started building a real estate empire in Edenton, North Carolina, and there's a building there uh, with her name on it, and her story is is told in this book, uh, Carolina Built, um, by Kiana Alexander, and um, it's about her story coming from being enslaved to becoming a person who acquired wealth and and through through real estate, and that's a story that and, and there's so many stories like this, and the one of the first stories. I heard that I was totally fascinated about were the women that worked for NASA during the space program, before they were computers. That story about those women uh, was just amazing. And there's so many stories like that uh, that are being told and more and more will be told. And it's just wonderful. And this is usually when we find out about them during, our, you know, during Black History Month. Can you just... Tell us a little bit about the women who worked for NASA when we come back after this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration of 
Black History Month uh, through the eyes and the mouths of white people. Two members of the community who've been at this work locally for years, UNCW Professor Kim Cook and New Hanover County Remembrance Project leader Jim Downey. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. The new racism in America is different from the Jim Crow racism we've mostly left behind. The new racism can be harder to see. The new racism is far more sophisticated, but all we have to do to understand that it's there and it's doing its job of upholding white supremacy is look at its results, pervasive inequality between whites and people of color in the areas of political representation and power, wealth accumulation, earning power, and rates of arrest, conviction, incarceration. The numbers documented by numerous social scientists are unmistakable. And since Black History Month typically puts a larger responsibility on black leaders, teachers, and officials, we're exploring white allyship and how whites can do their own work to be effective anti-racists. Kim Cook is a professor in UNCW's Sociology and Criminology Department. She's also the director of the Restorative Justice Collaborative. Jim Downey is a glass artist, and he leads the New Hanover County Community Remembrance Project, which is connecting the dots among the victims of Wilmington's 1898 massacre and their descendants. And Jim Downey, you talked about women who worked for NASA. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in you know, in in my my effort and my quest to find out more about the black experience in America, and reading all these these books and trying to um, watch movies, the movie that came out a few years ago called Hidden Figures was a story that I had no idea, and I think many white people had no idea that before there were computers that could calculate the moon, you know, the the, the moon um, going to the moon. Um, they were done by African-Americans that were like human computers. And one of them's name was Katherine Johnson. She lived to be 102 years old. She wow. just died in 2020. Amazing. Amazing. And, and so after seeing the movie, you know, I needed to know more because you can only get so much information, um, you know, in a movie. So the, the book, Hidden Figures, talks about the history of what these women went through in their personal lives during that period of time. And one of the things I learned is because of the Brown versus education decision to um, stop segregation in schools, the county in which these human computers were working decided that instead of ending segregation in their schools, they decided to close all the public schools in that county in Virginia for four years. So that they wouldn't have to integrate. Yes. So that means white children as well as black children could not get 
elementary school, high school, middle school education for four years because the county school board decided that it was better to close it than to integrate. And Jim Downey. Can I, can I interrupt for just a quick second? Yes. I'm uncomfortable with a with referring to these women as human computers. I think it, it uh, commodifies and capitalizes on their experience that they are incredibly brilliant mathematicians. So I just I want to put a pin in that for a minute and just as an example of how sometimes our language can be inadvertently diminishing um, and how sometimes our language can be um, reinforcing some notions that maybe we don't intend to reinforce. So I, I, I know that we're on the same page with this, Jim, so I appreciate that. And I think that um, these women were incredibly talented and incredibly strong and incredibly brilliant and undervalued Indeed. by our society. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This is a great moment for uh, one white person to hold an, another white person accountable in a kind and respectful and generous way. We know, Jim Downey, your intentions were to give these women all their flowers. But the language, and Kim, mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit more about how to navigate this? Because we all know Jim meant well. Yeah. And yet... And yet, the language objectified them. And this is where the invisibility comes in, right? That the, the, the language that we're so accustomed to and steeped in from our white supremacist culture is, it just so easily rolls off our tongue. It just so easily turns into just a throwaway comment or even a, a, a intentionally laudatory description. Like this was meant to be praise, and it is, it is. you know, these women are incredible women. Um, and so I just think it's really important for us to not be so um, fragile within ourselves that we can't rethink how we think about the stuff that we're talking about. And I, I do two things regularly. One is I ask myself, how have I combated racism today? And that usually helps me to feel pretty good about myself. And then I do something even way harder, which is how did I contribute to racism today? And that's very humbling. And when I ask myself that and I go through my day or when I go through my experience and I notice that there were interactions that could be interpreted as reproducing white supremacy, I have a gut check and I have to go through, I have to do it to myself. I have to reflect for myself in this really deep and honest way that I can do better and I certainly in no way perceive myself to be perfect at this, but I am earnest in my desire to get it right and to get better. When my, my Angela says, when you know better, you do better. 
So I'm trying to know better so I can do better. And this isn't about self-flagellation. Oh, God, no. Or, um, or attacking somebody else. No. Because, again, that's, a, that's sort of an ego, like a, a white ego is getting in the way. Right. When this is really about asking those questions honestly. So can you give us an example, uh, Professor Cook, of how, um, how recently, because you are such an example of someone who's been doing this work for a long time, someone who is so aware, but there are still times that you'll come up with a way that you reinforced white supremacy today. So, so how? Yeah, so there was a an event happening, and um, I was not organizing it. I was not on the panel. I was an audience member, just a nobody in the audience. And the panel discussion was about a topic that very much touches on our patterns of racial inequality in our community. And because we know that there's a, there's a lot of uh, racialized disparities in our society with respect to health care, with respect to education, with respect to home ownership and income, I mean, the, the racial inequality is everywhere. Um, the conversation was not addressing that. And there was a person in the audience, a person of color in the audience, who attempted to bring that piece of the conversation to the surface and was shut down by the panelists. And I could have, and probably, as I now reflect on it, should have offered a follow-up to bring that conversation back into the surface of the discussion because it was super important. It was a healthcare question. It was about access to healthcare. And if we can't talk about the fact that access to healthcare is racialized in this community and in across the country, then we can't solve the problem. What do you think stopped you in that moment from bringing? I didn't want to embarrass the people who were on the panel. Were they white? Mainly. And, and I regret that, and I feel like I failed in my quest to be a better ally. So it's, you know, there are times when I stay silent when I should speak up. There are times when I speak up and I get it wrong. There are times when I speak up and I get it right occasionally. You know, I try. And it's about really being aware of how you are perceived and how people can interpret your presence like Isabel Wilkerson's experience her presence was interpreted completely badly completely wrong and there are times when my presence can be interpreted in ways that I don't intend for it to be seen and yet it can and and that comes from a culture of historical importance that we cannot ignore and if we ignore it we're doomed yeah thank you for that you're welcome Heather McGee is a best-selling author of The Sum of Us. She is an, uh, an economist, an economic analyst, a, a policy advocate, and she has both written the book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs All of Us, and I hope I'm getting that book title right. She also did a TED Talk in which she talks about some of the history of economic policy in the U.S. And uh, let's just listen to what she has to say about the early 20th century. 
In the 1930s and 40s, the United States went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities funded by tax dollars, which in Montgomery, Alabama, included the Oak Park Pool, which was the grandest one for miles. You know, back then, people didn't have air conditioners, and so they spent their hot summer days in a steady rotation of sunning and splashing and then cooling off under a ring of nearby trees. It was the meeting place for the town, except the Oak Park Pool, though it was funded by all of Montgomery's citizens, was for whites only. When a federal court finally deemed this unconstitutional, the reaction of the town council was swift. Effective January 1st, 1959, they decided they would drain the public pool rather than let black families swim too. This destruction of public goods was replicated across the country in towns, not just in the South. Towns closed their public parks, pools, and schools, all in response to desegregation orders all throughout the 1960s. In Montgomery, they shut down the entire parks department for a decade. They closed the recreation centers. They even sold off the animals in the zoo. Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs All of Us, talking about economic policy. And, and so I think what we're hearing from Isabel Wilkerson and Heather McGee and what we've heard from countless social scientists and researchers over the decades is that this embedded racism embedded in policy and culture hurts all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. So it's so true. And so this is something then with the few minutes that we have left, Kim, I think, just gave a great example of one way that a white person in the room can work against this embedded white supremacy. What are some other ways that people can take with them and think about things that perhaps they haven't thought about before and actually today do the work of being an anti-racist? Because so much of it is in small, subtle ways, right? Pointing, pointing to it when you see it in front of other white people and having the courage to do it. I mean, So we started our conversation today, Rachel, talking about white guilt. And I think it's fair to um, segue into white responsibility. I think if we're going to be allies in the cause of combating racism and being anti-racist in our society, we have to take responsibility for the people in our lives who are reproducing, including ourselves, and especially ourselves, for uh, reproducing the kind of white supremacist logic that is everywhere in our community and in our heads, in our minds, in our belief systems and our cultural practices, um, we have to take responsibility to see it. We have to take responsibility to change it. We have to take responsibility to learn about it. We have to take responsibility to teach our children to do better. The musical South Pacific has this wonderful song, you have to learn to hate, right? So this is about teaching children and teaching each other and teaching yourself that the process of, of combating racism has to involve people who are designated as white 
taking the responsibility to destroy the system of white supremacy that our forebears and our contemporaries have constructed. Jim Downey. I was just thinking as you were saying that um, I am usually not one to quote scripture. <laughs> if anyone knows me, they'll, that's they'll tr- know that that's true. true that's for why me. we're laughing. But you, <laughs> but you cannot remove the speck from your brother's eye unless to remove unless you remove the one from your own first. And <laughs> what when when I started at a late stage of sixty years old, started to read African American authors exclusively just to try to absorb as much as I can from their experiences through writing and then try as much as I can to put my physical self in black spaces when I'm welcome to do that, to, to join the local NAACP, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, now we say NAACP, right. to join that organization and not just to give my donation, my, my membership fees, but to actually attend the meetings mm-hmm. and to become involved. Those are things that I can do, and I'm trying to be an anti-racist. And as Ibram X. Kendi says, you are either trying to become anti-racist or you're not. What does put, what, and I guess this is going to have to be a second edition. We're out of time. Can I say one thing that W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the importance of the the problem of the 20th century was a problem of the color line. I think the responsibility of the 21st century is to erase the color line. And that's this edition of Coastline. Professor Kim Cook, Jim Downey, thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rachel. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline Hosted By. You can find this episode along with a host of resources at WHQR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.